we want to help everyone get out of what I call solo economic dependency, which means if they're personally not working, they're not making any money. So let's just pick on a dentist. If a dentist's hands aren't in somebody's mouth, then the dentist isn't generating any revenue. So we can take doctors, lawyers, anyone with a W-2 job, freelancers. So if you're trading hours for dollars, you have so economic dependency, you don't scale. So that's really the mission is to free all these people so that once their passive income exceeds their fixed expenses, then they've eliminated that big bucket of stress in our lives we call money. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors. Welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I am sitting down with Mark, aka The Land Geek. Now, Mark has done over 6,000 land deals and is author of the book, Dirt Rich, The Ultimate Guide to Helping You Build a Passive Income Model in Raw Land Investing. Not to mention, he's also host of the incredible podcast, The Art of Passive Income. Mark, we are so excited to learn from you today. Justin, thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. Let's dive right into land investing. I mean, what steered you to niche off into land investing? So if we rewind the tape, 22 years to 2000, I was a miserable, micromanaged, 45-minute commute to work and back investment banker, specializing in mergers and acquisitions with private equity groups. And Justin, it got so bad for me. I wouldn't get the Sunday blues anticipating Monday coming around. I'd get the Friday blues anticipating the weekend going by really fast and having to be back at work on Monday. So my firm hires this guy. He's telling me that as a side hustle, he's buying up parcels, pennies on the dollar. He's flipping them online and he's making a 300% return on his investment. And I'm looking at companies all day long. And Justin, a great company has 15% EBITDA margins or free cash flow. Average companies, 10%. I'm looking at companies all day long, less than 10%. So I don't believe him. I've got three grand saved up for car repairs. I go to New Mexico with him. I do exactly what he tells me to do. I buy up 10 half-acre parcels, an average price of $300 each. I flip them online and they all sell for an average price of $1,200 each. It worked, 300%. So I took all that money, went to another auction in Arizona, which is where I live, and again, it's 2000. There's no one in the room. I'm buying up lots and acreage for nothing. And so I sold all that property. I made over $90,000 cash on just that one auction. So I go to my wife and she's pregnant. And I said, honey, I'm going to quit my job and become a full-time land investor. <laughs> and she's like, absolutely not. So I said, okay, okay. So it took me about 18 months for the land investing income to exceed the investment banking income. And then I quit and I've been doing it full-time ever since. And I absolutely love it. So, I mean, that's really incredible. And I can't imagine what was going through your mind when it worked, because like, you just couldn't believe it. Did you have that thought like, well, if that's true, why isn't everybody doing this? I bet that's kind of a common thing that you hear from people. Yeah. I mean, I kind of knew why everybody wouldn't do it because it's raw land. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I first started even just thinking of investing $3,000, I really didn't have to invest in. Mm -hmm. I walked through with a worst case scenario with my wife. And the worst case scenario was, well, I can't sell the land I bought. Mm -hmm. And so what am I going to do with this raw land? Well, 
it wasn't so bad. It wasn't like I was going to fill up the garage with a bunch of stuff. And so I thought, well, worst case scenario is I've got an asset and I could just barter. Maybe I'll get free haircuts for a couple of years or free dentistry. I could barter with it if I couldn't sell it. The other worst case was like, okay, it's an asset that lasts forever. I have nothing to maintain, nothing to protect. And the property taxes were really cheap, like nine bucks a year. I could handle it. So my downside was like really easy for me to handle. And if it worked, the risk reward ratio really made a lot of sense to me in the beginning. That's how I sort of kind of dove in. And I totally agree with that, that people don't really think of investing in land because naturally as humans, our minds always go to like that worst case scenario. And they just think, well, I own this plot of land that just never becomes anything. Nobody ever wants to buy it for me. Nobody ever wants to build on it. It's just kind of a plot of land that I just own for the sake of owning. I live in Arizona myself. And sometimes you're driving to Vegas or you're driving down to Tucson, you're on those long patches. For years, you see these big trailers parked up that says land for sale, 500 acres. And you think, wow, that has been for sale for years now and nobody's buying it. So I guess it's really, really intimidating in that sense. So you made most of your wins in the Phoenix area, sounds like. No, no. I actually invest all over the country. And I like Arizona, but I won't invest in Phoenix. And in fact, Justin, if you want, I can just walk you through the model. You can see exactly how I do it. Let's do it. Okay. So Justin, you're in Arizona like me, right? That's right. Okay. So I'm going to assume that you bought five acres of raw land in Texas mm-hmm. and you owe $200 in back taxes. And so you're advertising two important things to me. Number one, you have no emotional attachment to the raw land. You're in Arizona, the property's in Texas. And number two, you're distressed financially in some weird way because we don't pay for things like property taxes. We don't value them the same way. As a result, county treasurer keeps sending you notices saying, Justin, if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to lose that parcel to a tax deed or tax lien investor. So all I'm going to do is look at the comparable sales on your five-acre parcel for the last 12 to 18 months. I'm going to take the lowest comparable sale. I'm going to divide by four, and that's going to get me a 300% margin of safety. Mm -hmm. So let's just use easy math. We'll say the lowest comp is $10,000. $10,000. I'm going to send you an actual offer in the mail for $2,500. Now for you, you accept it because for you, $2,500 is better than nothing. In reality, three to 5% of people accept my quote unquote top down offer. Now that you've accepted it, I've got to go through due diligence or in-depth research. I have to confirm you still own the property. I have to confirm back taxes are only $200. I have to make sure there's been no breaks in the chain of title. There's no liens or encumbrances. I want to know what the restrictions are. So I have this whole big checklist that my team fills out for me based in the Philippines. Costs about $11 for my due diligence. Now, and at the same time, they're getting me all my marketing. They're getting me the plat maps, aerial maps, satellite maps, the GIS map, everything that my next buyer is going to want to know. And if it's an area I've never been in, I'll have someone go out there locally 50 bucks, local Craigslist gig, fill out my property checklist. I want to know are the neighbors dumping? What are the roads like? How far from the nearest services, nearest Walmart, those types of things. So if everything checks out, I'm going to buy the property from you. I'm going to flip it and I'm going to make a cash flow like a rental home. So Justin, I have a built-in best buyer. Do you know who it is? Who is that? The neighbors. So I sent out neighbor letters saying, hey, here's your opportunity. Protect your privacy, protect your views, know your neighbor. Oftentimes the neighbors will buy it. Now, if they pass... I go to my buyer's list. The buyer's list passes. I'll go to a Craigslist. 
10th most trafficked website in the United States. I'll go to one I know you've heard of called Meta or Facebook, buy, sell groups, the yep. marketplace. And then I'm going to go to the lands, landmoto.com, landandfarm.com, landsofamerica.com, landflip.com, landhub.com, all of these platforms where people buy and sell raw land every day. But the magic is in the pricing. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make this property, this five-acre parcel, irresistible to my next buyer. So all I'm going to ask for is a $2,500 down payment. And then I'm going to make it a car payment. Let's say three three nine a month and 9% interest over the next 84 months. So I get this one-time sale. I'll get my money out on the down payment, but I might go six to 10 months out. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to get three three nine a month and 9% interest over the next 84 months. Justin, no renters, no rehabs, no renovations, no rodents. And because I'm not dealing with the tenant, I'm exempt from Dodd-Frank, RESPA, and the SAFE Act, all this onerous real estate legislation. So it's a simple game that we play. Can we create enough land notes where our passive income exceeds our fixed expenses? And now we're working because we want to, not because we have to. Well, first, let's go all the way back. Let's say that first owner who you solicit for the land, you say, hey, you know, I'm going to give you 2500 bucks. You mail in your offer to them. I think something on a lot of listeners' mind is, well, how did that person end up with the land anyway? Like, how do people get into buying five, 10 plus acres of land, maybe somewhere out in Texas? How does that process, I guess, start? What brings that initial person into purchasing that land? You hear story after story where people at some point in their life, they know that area and they had a dream of building out there one day. They were going to improve that property. They were going to do something with that property at some point in time. And then life got in the way and they got tired of paying the property taxes or maybe they can't afford the property taxes anymore. And that asset in their minds now became a liability. Mm -hmm. And all we're doing is we're coming in and relieving them of that stress and that mental bandwidth or financial anguish of owning something they're never going to use anymore. Got it. And so that's when you come in and I assume that they get solicited fairly often by other investors as well. I mean, as much as we like to think, you know, we're not the only people in here who are looking to play the games that we play. So how do you, I guess, stand out when there's other investors who are probably doing similar things, making them offer saying, hey, we'll purchase your land for X, Y, and Z. Do you have any strategies for standing out or maybe being the first one there? Or how do you go about acquiring the parcels that you want? Yeah. So really there's one secret to it, to stand out. And the credit card companies have taught us the secret. So every time we go to our mailbox, we get a new credit card offer. It doesn't matter if it's Discover, American Express, Visa, MasterCard, whomever it is, we're getting them in the mail constantly. And one day we might need that credit card. But imagine if Discover after the first three months decided, well, no, we didn't get any responses from this Mark Podolsky. I'm not going to mail them anymore. So now Discover's out of it. Now I'm getting American Express, Visa, and MasterCard. Then American Express says, it's been six months. Mark hasn't responded to our credit card offer. And now I'm getting them for only Visa and MasterCard. So consistently showing up every 90 days with an offer makes you stand out. There's lots of sales statistics about sales aren't made until the 12th to 15 contactor. or some of the industries vary, of course, but most salespeople give up after the third touch point. It's like 80%. So a vast majority just stop. And so you're just staying with them. So the second they hit that default, they make it onto your list. They're going to hear from you until they sell or buy, really. I've heard that same statistic. That's a lie. The seven touch points. You know how many touch points it is today? It's over 500 now. We need 500 digital touch points before we'll make a purchase. 
And that continues to go up because like you said, there's so many people in the field. There's so much buying for our attention as consumers. Yeah. I mean, every time that that statistic is reviewed, it goes up and up and up and marketers who were in the field of marketing as well need to continue to create new ways to get in front of people and to really stay in front of them for longer. So I guess one of the things with land investing is it sounds like you are having some kind of down payment. So you're sort of getting your cash out. If you're paying, let's say in that scenario, 2,500 bucks, this person, let's say it's a neighbor wants to buy it. They're going to give you the 25 and then you're actually arranging payments. So do you do any one-time flips? Like, okay, yeah, you give me three X my money and I'll sell it to you for 7,500 and I'll get out. Or do you always like that payment structure? I love the term. And this is, I think I'm stealing it from Ray Dalio. Cash is trash. Mm-hmm. So I don't want cash. I want cash flow because what happens is if I get, cash. Well, I've got a new job for myself of redeploying that cash. But if I can be ambitiously lazy, I can buy a piece of land and make that cash flow for the next 60, 84, 120 months. I don't care. Well, then I'm getting the highest, best use out of that capital. And if I needed cash, I could always sell the note Mm-hmm. To an investor, I could sell a partial of the note. I get two bites of the apple. I can get my cash out, redeploy it. And then the second bite of the apple, that note reverts back to me and then I get the passive income. So ideally, yes, our average margins are 300 to 1,000%, but the higher margin is going to be on time value of money, on the terms deals, 300% on cash deals. And so tell us about... I guess a deal that maybe didn't pan out as planned. So that just the listeners kind of understand more of that risk, because I know you talked a little bit about, hey, upside versus downside. The downside of these sounds like it's a lot less than like maybe buying a home where you have an actual structure and insurance and tenants and mortgages and things like that. But can you tell us a little bit about a deal that didn't go as planned? Maybe you couldn't sell as quick as you thought. And how do you, I guess, adjust to those situations that come up? Well, I can tell you my worst deal yeah, so it was in 2004. There's an area in Pennsylvania called Treasure Lake. It was this overdeveloped subdivision and it was gated. They had two PGA rated golf courses. They had three lakes. It was beautiful. There's million dollar homes in there, but they had a thousand lots that were overdeveloped and nobody was paying their property owners association fees. Nobody was paying their taxes. So they had liens on them. So I fly in with my suit and I meet with the board of the property owners association said, look, you got dead money and I'm going to resurrect it. You sell me these lots and I will then flip them. And when I get a new buyer, I'll have them pay off the liens. So the property owners associations will get somebody paying on that lot, which is no one's paying on now. And for the county, we'll get somebody paying the county taxes. And you'd think, oh, this is a no brainer deal. No, I had to go back and forth for two years. I went back and forth with them. Finally, in 2007, they agree. So I buy up a thousand lots for 50 bucks a pop. While I own the property, I was going to have a tax abatement. So I didn't have to pay any property taxes and any property owners association fees. I made a hundred grand on that deal. And then guess what happened? 2008 rolls around. I can't sell the property. So it was the first time in business, I wasn't able to keep my promise. And when I factored in my time, I really broke even on that deal. And that was the worst land deal I've ever done. 
And again, for that being the worst deal you've done, that's not too bad. And I think a lot of people who invest in other assets are thinking, man, that doesn't sound that bad at all. So how do you, I guess, prevent getting into those? Is it in that due diligence process? Do you have just that formula down? What's the most important part of that? Is it looking at the comps? Is it looking for the location? How do people mitigate risk if they decide, yeah, you know, I want to start getting into land investing. I want to start dipping my toes in that. So the best place to go now is landmoto.com. We can already see publicly where the market is, where properties are selling. So those are the areas where I want to focus on. I didn't have a mentor at that time kind of guiding me and teaching me about different markets and different strategies like I have today. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I was arrogant because I was making so much money from 2001 to 2008, like everyone else in real estate. So I really didn't know. So if I were going to do it again, I would definitely have tested the market first. I wouldn't have bought a thousand lots, bought five and tested it and made it a tiny bet instead of a big bet and done that or done a takedown deal. I'd say, okay, each month I'll take down five lots at this strike price. I'll sell them and then I'll go to the next batch. If something changes in the market, I have flexibility with it, which is what we teach today. So at that point in time, I would say that understanding your market, doing your due diligence, and of course, we make our money on the buy is really, really important. And so tell us about LandGeek. So that's your website. There's a lot of education there. Tell us about that website. Tell us about, I guess, your mission with that website. Yeah. So the LandGeek has this very simple mission. We want to help everyone get out of what I call solo economic dependency, which means if they're personally not working, they're not making any money. So let's just pick on a dentist. So if a dentist's hands aren't in somebody's mouth, then the dentist isn't generating any revenue. We can take doctors, lawyers, anyone with a W-2 job, freelancers. So if you're trading hours for dollars, you have so economic dependency, you don't scale. So that's really the mission is to free all these people so that once their passive income exceeds their fixed expenses, then they've eliminated that big bucket of stress in our lives we call money. And then you can work when you want, where you want, and with whom you want. I mean, I love working. I never want to retire. But I certainly don't like the idea that I have to be somewhere. So it's a different way of looking at the world. And I think a better way, actually, because I have no passion for raw land. But what I do have passion for is that time freedom to really help other people do what I truly love to do and fulfill that purpose. And I think people would be really surprised when they find out that some people's passive income does either match or even exceed their full-time job income, but they still work. But you don't understand the weight off your shoulder every morning, walking into your job that maybe you like, maybe you love, maybe had this good and bad days, but just knowing, okay, I'm okay. Economy turns down. If the management changes and they let me go, if I wake up and I just hate it one day, you can take action. You can really take it kind of sounds corny, but your life in your own hands and you really have control over what you do. I think that's so undervalued. And I think when people do achieve that certain amount of financial abilities, you'd be surprised at how many people continue to work. We just want that freedom. So, I mean, Mark, super, super valuable. I think land is something that is so underutilized as an investment vehicle. How can people get a hold of you and who should maybe reach out and get in touch? I think the best way is just the landgeek.com. And if you want to learn, I think the best way to learn anything is by doing it. I've got a free course, just go to thelandgeek.com forward slash quick deals, teach you how to double your money, 30 days or less. 
But to your point about security and passive income, I just did a quick calculation. If you have $10,000 a month coming in in passive income, that's $120,000 a year. If you went to the banker today and said, I want to get $120,000 a year of passive income and interest income, how much money do I need to deposit in the bank? And they say, okay, 2% CD, no problem. Give us $6 million and that'll throw off that interest income. How long will it take most people to save $6 million? But people, never. people can get to $10,000 a month in passive income in 12 to 18 months. I mean, I love it because I think as people like us dive into the numbers of what it truly means to generate a meaningful amount of passive income, even if it's through dividend stocks or if it's through rentals, single family home rentals, something like that, you really understand that that's such an uphill battle unless you look for, I say, quote unquote, alternative investments like land, like apartments, like mobile home parks, like something else. So listeners, I will definitely check out LandGeek. We're going to put that link in the show notes for you to check that out and that course so you can start doing and get involved in that. Take, again, your financial freedom in your own hands. While you're there, if you haven't already, of course, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Mark, thank you so much for spending a couple minutes of your day with us. Thanks, Justin.